0: All right, I think we're probably ready to, ready to rock and roll, so let's, let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for, uh, for all that you do in our lives and for the ways that you speak to us. We Thank you especially for the gift of sacred scripture and ask that you may send forth your Holy Spirit upon us to guide us into all truth through your word. And we entrust this time into Mary's hands as we pray Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. So just for, uh, for the sake of full disclosure, I think you know, uh, last week, I, I did test positive. I've got no symptoms now. I'm after, out of my five-day isolation. Technically, the CDC says I should be wearing a mask for five days, but I can't speak this whole time with a mask on, so um, that's just the way it is. Uh, so um, yeah, feel fine, uh, ready to rock and roll. So we're at sacred scripture this time. So. Uh, thanks, yeah, so last time we talked about revelation, we talked about how God reveals himself to us, and one of the ways that he does that, most profoundly, is through sacred scripture. So you can just take a moment and you can think about what scripture means to your own life, right? Like how, how you view the Bible, the way the Bible has been, been important to you. And I, probably in our lives, maybe hopefully in our lives, it's actually, it's actually grown. Now, I remember my first experience of the Bible was before going to bed at night, my dad reading my older brother and I the stories from a children's Bible. That's probably how most of us learned. Or probably a lot of people have memories of teaching their children, uh, you know, sitting down and reading a children's Bible, which is great, right? You get these stories of Noah in the flood, or of Moses in the Red Sea, or David killing Goliath, right? All these great stories that. Um, that really kind of animate our imagination as children but of course we don't just want to stay there right we don't want to stay with the Bible being a children's story then probably at some point in our lives uh, and, and maybe even this is this is kind of our, our lives is that the Bible's like an inspirational quote book You right? You see this all over the place like even as I was looking for this picture here to put in there there was another picture next to us that said 50 inspirational Bible quotes about hope which, which is nice, but that's not what the Bible is, right? The Bible's not just a big book of quotes, because, especially inspirational quotes, because maybe you've had an experience where you read something like, that is not the most inspiring thing, and quite possibly <laughs> one of the most horrific things I've ever read in my life. And that's all, that's all, in, that's all in the Bible. So of course there's, there's important passages, and there's actually books in the Bible that are basically quote books, but, um, but that's not the whole, the whole thing. And then maybe another way we view the Bible is like answers to the questions that we have. I've got a question about eternity. What's heaven like? Let me find the answer in the Bible. And in some ways, like that's what the, you know, we look at it almost like the catechism, right? The catechism's got all these different teachings about about the Eucharist. Well, what does the Bible say about this topic? What's the Bible say about this topic? Which you can do that, but that's not at the essence what the Bible is. And then sometimes with this, you can get into what we call proof texting, right? And sometimes people who get into arguments about about religion will just like throw Bible verses back. And it's like, I have this idea. Let me show you what the Bible says about it, which is dangerous because you can pretty much find um, justification for almost anything in the Bible, right? You want to talk about like uh, murdering somebody. I mean, that happens in the Bible, right? Uh, All sorts of different things. So... So we don't want to just proof text. And sometimes uh, we go through what you might call a skeptic phase. Right, how, how is this actually true? You know, these, these stories, is this, is this actually real? And sometimes that's just like the rebellious teenager, but sometimes it's also like a crisis in faith after bad things, we see that bad things are good things, bad things happen to good people. Right, so there was this like, skeptical, is this actually the way God treats his people? So probably the most fundamental way to look at the Bible. Not saying any of these other ways are wrong, right? It's it's something for kids. It is inspirational. There's quotes in there, but the the um, the fundamental way to look at the Bible, I think, and as the catechism says, is that it's the word of God in the words of men. So it's basically the word of God speaking to us in the words that we can understand, right? In in words, phrases. Uh, stories that we can we can understand and that's kind of the fundamental way of viewing the Bible and that's even this catechism quote on the right talks about indeed the words of God expressed in the words of men are in every way like human language just as the word of the eternal father when he took on himself the flesh of human weakness became like men so that's like an analogy of the incarnation right? so the incarnation the eternal word of God Jesus, the son, becomes flesh. And so we can encounter him, right? So that we can touch him, so that we can reach out, so we can hear his voice. Similarly, with sacred scripture, the word of God comes into human words so that we can understand, so that we can communicate, so that we can hear, so that we can have some clarity. So there's a little analogy between the fact that Jesus becomes flesh and dwells among us and the word of God becomes the words of men in the Bible so that we can understand, so that we can communicate. And so this word of God, you know, comes to us in two modes. We talked about this last time. Sacred scripture in sacred tradition is how the Lord speaks to us. Okay. Also, I mentioned this last time. If anybody has any questions, just feel free to feel free to throw your hands up in the air like you just don't care. And then th- this slide's just really about how important sacred scripture is, is to us. Um, and so 1 Thessalonians, which is the first part of the New Testament that's written. 1 Thess- Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, the first like historical thing that was written in the, in the New Testament. And for this re- reason we, give, we too give thanks to God unceasingly that in receiving the word of God from hearing us, you received it not as a human word, but as it truly is the word of God, which is now at work in you who believe. And then the catechism there, sacred scripture, the, in the sacred scripture, the church constantly finds her nourishment and her strength. For she welcomes it not as a human word, but as what it really is, the word of God. And the sacred books, the father who is in heaven comes lovingly to meet his children and talks with them. Now that's a, that's a, uh, that's a way to view Sacred Scripture, the Father lovingly comes to speak to his children. And sometimes the Father speaks to the children with encouragement, with stories, you know, that are, that are um, enlightening, but also with truth that guides us and corrects us. So that's, that's the way we can, we can view this. You also have to wonder, what, where does this, like, come from? All right, because the Bible just didn't, like, flop out of the sky, and all of a sudden, okay, great, we've got it, this is cool, Um, right, so you got, we got to kind of critically think about, where, how does this, how do we get from something that St. Paul, a little letter he wrote to his pal Timothy, to now 2,000 years later, we're reading it, and we're printing millions of copies of it, How, how does that happen, that it gets from, from the event happening, you know, whether it's, the david killing goliath how do we get from that into that story is printed recognizes the word of god and the words of men you know whatever 30 or 3000 years later so where did the bible come from right did it just plain fall out of the sky well that seems unlikely and if it did we'd be a little a little cuckoo for cocoa puffs if we if we said that But then also some people say, well, you know, you get some critics, you get some people that are, that get like an interview on the History Channel. Those are always fun people to learn about the Bible from because they have some interesting things to say, but also they're, well, they're a bit critical. And uh, they don't come from a, from looking at it faith and oftentimes they'll say something like it's a conspiracy right these people wanted to overpower another people you want to control people one of the ways to do that is through religion is to say okay let's let's have all, let's come up with all of these stories so that people will be compelled to obey us there seems there has to be an easier way to get people to obey you I mean like you just do the Joseph Stalin route and just kill them if they know and that'll put some fear in them so the conspiracy, i don't know, it never really there are better ways to control people if that's all this is about. So what 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 how did this process actually happen? And you th- if you just think about it, it makes perfect sense that the events happen, right? So Jesus rises from the dead, and then the oral tradition, right? People start talking about it. People start saying, and then you realize, okay, we actually we need to write this down, right? So there's Matthew, Matthew writing down, writing down the gospel, and then it's recognized as sacred scripture. So the events happened. They are talked about. They're communicated. People tell the stories. Then they're written down, and then the church recognizes them as, okay, this is, this is the word of God and the words of men. Yeah? What about the lost books of the Bible they claim to be finding now? Oh, we'll get to that. That's a great question, Donna. I love that. Yeah, the lost, the lost books of the Bible. Yeah, that's great. Uh, All right. So, are these things trustworthy? Um, Can we can we believe this? Or or is this all like this? Kind of gets to the conspiracy thing. And so maybe something you remember in history class is reading Caesar's self, Julius Caesar's kind of self what would you call it, his own uh, recollections of the Gallic Wars. So Caesar goes into France in the year 50 BC, he beats up on some French people, big deal, Um, and then, (laughs) sorry if anybody's French. (laughs) Um, and, uh, And then shortly thereafter kind of journals about it, writes his recollections of what happens. And there's manuscripts of those, right? But the earliest manuscripts we have of Caesar's Gallic Wars are copies that date back to 900 AD. And there's only nine or ten of these left. Scholars don't seem to question whether Caesar was lying or not about his, his trips and his, his campaigns, his military campaigns. You compare that to the New Testament, where those events happened roughly the same time, you know, within 50 to 110 years, and then shortly thereafter are written down 40 to 100 AD. We have manuscripts that go all the way back to 130 AD and then complete Bibles, complete editions of the New Testament by 350. Like that's how far back they date. So you just look at like the gap between when the, the text that we have appears and uh, when the events happened. It's so small with the Bible compared to any other historical text. And then the sheer number. Now, not all of those are complete Bibles. Some of them are just like, a copy of our page of a copy from the letter of st. Paul to the Corinthians or something like that but nonetheless the manuscript evidence is like there's a lot going for it in the Bible like just from a surely historical perspective all right and then um, so what does it mean that this is inspired right because we 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 hear this in in second Timothy all scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for refutation, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So all scripture is inspired by God. Well, the scriptures say that, so in some ways that's almost like if I told you Father Sean's a very believable person. I'd be like, okay, consider the source, right? Of course, of course you're gonna say that. So what do we mean by scripture being inspired? Probably what we wanna do is avoid two extremes right, to avoid the extreme of dictation. where basically basically, huma- let's just say the humanity of St. Matthew is basically taken out of the occasion. He's basically what we, you would say, he's just, it'd be like the same thing as, uh, as like me speaking into my phone to send a text message, right? Basically, God saying to, dis- dictating the scripture to Matthew and him just copying down whatever he hears God saying, right? So that basically removes all of Matthew's humanity out of it. And then the other extreme, where Matthew just writes whatever he wants, and the church is like, all right, that's pretty good, right? With like, no help from God. So what do we mean by that the scriptures are inspired? Catechism's got a great definition, that, uh, and the catechism's just copy and pasting from the Second Vatican Council document on uh, divine revelation, which I think I brought that, mentioned that last time. But, um, Anyways, to compose the sacred books, God chose certain men who... All the while he employed them in this task, made full use of their own faculties and powers, so that though he acted in them and by them, it was as true authors that they consigned to writing whatever he wanted written and no, and, and no more. Hmm, typo. Uh, and no more. So they're fully human and fully divine right? That whole incarnation comes back again. They're fully the use of Matthew's abilities, right? His personality shows forth in the, in what he writes, just like if, if you wrote a letter to somebody you loved, it would, you, you, your personality would come out in there. So Matthew's full humanity is in there, but the Lord's full divinity is in there working alongside of him to do this well, right? To compose it well. So it's a, is it human? Is it divine? The answer is yes, it is. Okay, so that's inspiration. And then we also talk about the, the Bible being inerrant, right? It doesn't contain any errors. What do we mean by the fact that the Bible doesn't have any issues, right? That it says the truth. Well, the very next paragraph in the Catechism, which also copies and pastes from the Second Vatican Council document on divine revelation, says, therefore, since everything asserted by the inspired authors or sacred authors inspired authors or sacred authors must be held to be asserted by the Holy Spirit. It follows that the books of scripture must be acknowledged as teaching solidly faithfully and without error that truth which God wanted to put into sacred writings for the sake of our salvation. Okay, so that truth that God wanted to put into sacred writings for the sake of our salvation. And you also notice how it it talks about the, the sacred authors and what they intended to write. So we can kind of, we can use kind of like um, even a whole lot of historical techniques to say, well, what did what these, these people, what were they intending to write uh, in this letter? Like you can, and we'll, we'll get there in just, in just a little bit. All right. So the Bible doesn't have any errors for the sake of our salvation. All right. Let's get to the lost books of the Bible. So the canon of sacred scripture, when we say the canon of scripture, we mean the list of books, the, like the, the list of approved. It has, it has nothing to do with artillery, much to my disappointment. <coughs> so the canon's the list of books in the Bible. So how do we figure those out? How were they figured out? Like this is the Bible, this isn't. Because the interesting thing's not just what's in the Bible, but what didn't make the cut. Right, what, what ancient books did not make it into the Bible. And how? And who decided? And why did they decide those things? Well, the criteria that was used were these three criteria at the top. So, apostolicity, so that basically goes back to the apostles or their co workers. So, you think about that, especially for the New Testament. Paul's one of the apostles' co workers, um, Peter, one of the apostles, so it goes back to the apostles as, as authors. And then even for the Old Testament, because there's some debate about what's sacred scripture in the Old Testament, like what should be included, what shouldn't, what did the apostles use? What did the apostles use as part of the Old Testament? We'll get into a little bit of the issues with that in the next slide. Orthodoxy, orthodoxy just means right teaching. So the Bible, what books in the Bible have the right teaching? So the church actually has to make this judgment to say this book doesn't teach what's right. Let me give you an example from the Gospel of Thomas here. All right, so the Gospel of Thomas tells a story about Jesus as a young boy. We don't have a whole lot of stories as Jesus as a young boy, so you're like, oh, this is kind of cool, this is a little gem, we don't get this. We'll let you judge if you think this is true or not. So uh, Jesus was playing in a creek with one of his neighbor boys, and uh, Jesus was, uh, so the the. The boy kind of pushed Jesus. Jesus didn't like that, so Jesus cursed the boy. He said, "Thou shalt be withered like a tree, and shalt not bear leaves, neither root nor fruit." And straight away, this translation says, "And straight away that lad withered up wholly." So Jesus turned somebody into a tree in the Gospel of Thomas, and then another boy bumps into him, and Jesus straight up kills the kid. That's in the Gospel of Thomas, chapter, five, verse, or chapter 4, verse 1. And when the boy's parents got mad at Jesus for, you know, murdering their child, uh, he cursed them, the parents, with blindness. Joseph tries, so Jesus comes home, and Joseph's like, I guess I should probably discipline Jesus, and uh, uh, with some ear twisting, right? Jesus wants, or Joseph tries to twist Jesus' ear, and Jesus' response is, vex me not, Father. Is there any wonder why the church gets the Gospel of Thomas and thinks, you know, maybe not. Maybe this isn't sacred scripture. Um, There's another kind of famous, so there's there's another one of the, we call them the Gnostic Gospels. Gnostic is kind of this word for like secret knowledge. So it's like, ooh, the secret knowledge of what Jesus was actually like as a child, or not. Um, There's another one, the Gospel of St. James. So, of course, it's not one of the, the four Gospels, but the Gospel of James that has this story at the very end of the Gospel of James, where uh, the Apostle John comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, what's going to happen to Mary Magdalene here? And Jesus says, don't worry, John, she'll be able to go to heaven, but I'm going to turn her into a man first, and then she'll be able to go to heaven, right? And the church gets this, and it's like, yeah, this, is, this isn't right, right? Right. Um, so right, so the church makes judgments on the orthodoxy, right, the correct teaching, and they say like that's actually that's actually not true. Um, but you think if you were going to forge a gospel, right, you were going to make something up, whose name would you put on it? If you know apostolicity is one of the criteria they're judging, let's put Thomas's name on it, right? Let's put James's name on it. Um, there's no, there's no copies of these that go that far back, right? We don't have manuscripts that go back that far. They're kind of like late 100s is kind of where it looks like they're they're from. I think that's the right timetable but um, yeah and then the last the last um, kind of uh, criteria is the Catholicity. Catholic means universal, so they're used all over the, the church, so it's not just it's you know the the gospel that was written. That's just the people in Jerusalem like, but they, nobody else has it anywhere. It's ones books of the Bible that were used all over the place. So that's why something like the Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians, was written to the people in Corinth, and yet people all over the world were reading it, right? So they they had a they had a universal scope in their and um, what they said. Saint Augustine who's alive in these late, late 300s was real big on like, we gotta nail down which books are in the Bible, which books aren't. So he, there's a council in Carthage, which is Northern Africa, where he is, uh, 397. Also there's a council in Rome in 382 that has the same canon, the same list of, these are the exp- inspired books, no more, no less. So, so it took a little while, but you know the church nailed it down. And then people had questions couple thousand years later, or a thousand years later. Uh, Anybody know who this guy is? It is Martin Luther, yeah. yeah. I don't know what sort of hat he has, but I'm not going to get one. It's like a beret. (laughs) beret? Yeah. Um, Not a raspberry beret. Any (laughs) Prince fans out there? (laughs) Um, All right, so there's 73 books in the Bible. 46 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And non-Catholic Bibles, you probably know this, often have fewer books in the Bible. Judith, Tobit, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, also called Sirach, Baruch, 1 and 2 Maccabees. And then there's parts of Daniel and Esther that aren't included. Um, so I had somebody tell me, or had a teacher say, the way to remember that is J.T. Webb and the 2 Maccabees. I don't know why, but that just kind of sticks. J.T. Webb, Judith Tobit, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, and the 2 Maccabees, 2 Maccabees. So uh, Luther also tried to get some from the New Testament taken out, Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and Revelation, but his, his crew was like, nah, we're, we're going to leave that intact. So you might wonder why. Why did, uh, why did these things, these books in particular, like what, what do we got against these books? And um, it gets back to a textual thing. So a lot of the... Um, Let's say you had a German Bible at the time of Martin Luther. It would have been a translation from the Latin Vulgate. So the Latin Vulgate was that that received text of the church. So it would have been a translation of that. And Luther wanted to go back to the original Hebrew, right? If you're going to make a translation, let's go back to the Hebrew for the Old Testament. And at that time, they could only find in the Hebrew, they didn't have any of these other books in Hebrew. The oldest manuscripts were all in Greek from the, Septuagint, so the Septuagint's the Greek Old Testament. So he said, "Well, these, these are Greek, right? These aren't; these are later additions to the uh, to the Bible, and um, and so this isn't this isn't this isn't going to be sacred scripture because this is the the Greek additions, like additions to the to the Bible. Um, and the the church. So at that time, as the church kind of wrestling with this, says, "Well." You look at the, as Jesus is quoting sacred scripture, as the apostles are quoting sacred scripture, uh, they use the Septuagint, right? So the, the, the quotes, when Jesus quotes the Bible, he's quoting the Greek of the Old Testament. And even there's other parts, especially like the letter of the Hebrews references these books in the Bible. So the, the New Testament writers use these as, uh, as um, use the, these books as part of sacred scripture. And then you get the old discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So in the 40s, the 1940s, there's a shepherd boy around the Dead Sea in the Holy Land that's shepherding his flock, chucking rocks into a cave like any young boy does, and he hears a clay pot crack. But what was that? And they go in, and they investigate, and they find one of the greatest discoveries of ancient manuscripts of all of these biblical texts in the 1940s, and you know, they, it takes them forever to kind of discover they want to preserve, how old they are. But they're, they're from around the time of Jesus that this community basically preserved their scriptures in these clay pots. Somehow they're miraculously preserved. And guess what books of the Bible are in Hebrew in the Dead Sea Scrolls that they found? These ones. So these people at the time of Jesus had Hebrew copies of these books of the, uh, of the uh, Old Testament, which you know, weren't, weren't thought to be written, have any Hebrew copies. So, so these Jewish people at the time of Jesus thought these were sacred scripture worth preserving for, I don't know, 19, 1,940 years. So that's a pretty good sign. Any questions about that? Who would have thought, you know, just that great discovery Chucking rocks. Gives me, gives me encouragement to throw more rocks. <laughs> Never know what discoveries you'll find. All right, so um, as we're jumping into this, just a reminder, right? The Bible isn't really a book. It's a library, right? There's 73 books within this Bible. And some of them are related, right? Second Kings is related to 1 Kings. But it's, it's not primarily just one big book, it is a collection of books, all together, bound together. So that's always something important to remember. I imagine everybody in this room knows how to look up a passage in sacred scripture where you get the book, the chapter, and then the verses, right? And then you get the book up here, you get the chapter, and then the verses are all numbered. Hopefully you can see, you can see that, but my guess is everybody here knows this. But as you're looking through all these books, right, in a library, Right, If you go to the library and you're looking for a book, you're going to find all different sorts of books. And you're going to read them differently. Right, If you go and you get a, a, a do-it-yourself plumbing book, and then you go get a Mark Twain novel, and then you go get a book of poetry, and then you get a biography of Michael Jordan, you're going to read all of those books differently because right? they're all meant to be read differently. Or you don't read poetry the same way you read the plumbing book, right? Those are two very different things and they're trying to tell you different things. And heck, even if you go and you pull out the Ohio Revised Code, you're gonna read that even, even more different, right? So all of these different, um, this library is full of different literary forms, different genres. Similarly, the Bible has a bunch of different genres in it. Right? and we gotta look to the intent of the author, okay. Paul's writing a letter. How do you read a letter? Right? who's this intended to? Like letters aren't just general things, they're often written to particular people. All right, who's he writing this letter to? Why is he writing this letter to this person? Like what's going on? Um, yeah, so we got to look at these different different genres and that helps us to read the different the different books of the Bible. So if it's a history or it's it's a narrative, you think about Exodus tells the story of the escape from Egypt, God freeing them from Egypt. Or the legal text, anybody's tried to read the book of Leviticus straight through? It's like trying to read the Ohio Revised Code straight through, it will not be fun. Um, right, so it's a legal text, it's, it's pretty much what it is. Uh, and then there's books of prophecy, so how do we, how do we read the book of, of a prophet? So Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, the prophets, just so everybody knows, there are four major prophets, twelve minor prophets. Um, the uh, the major prophets, uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, would all have their old scroll in a their own scroll in a collection of like the rabbinical texts. And then the twelve minor prophets are smaller, so they could all fit on the same scroll. They're not minor because they're less important. They're minor because they could all fit on one scroll together. The minor prophets are the ones where you get the fun names. Obadiah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, yeah, Jonah—not quite as fun, but still kind of cool. Um, I, yeah, I'm just hoping for Obadiah to baptize one day, right? That'd just be so cool. Nahum. So, uh, actually, our uh, so the seminary down in Cincinnati, we've got there's seminaries, you know, all over the Midwest. And about once a year, we gather for a basketball tournament. So we always called our basketball team the Minor Prophets, which was, was kind of fun. And everybody kind of got a good kick out of it. It's like a nerdy seminary joke, like, hey, we're the Minor Prophets. And then uh, one of the guys who took the nerddom to the next level, we had 12 guys that were playing, and he wanted to have a presentation on naming, on assigning each one of us a Minor Prophet as to who we were. And uh, it was rather funny. So. I was Nahum, if you're, if you're curious. I don't remember why, but. You gotta know. <sighs> yeah, I'll actually see the guy this weekend. I'll see if he remembers. Um, yeah. All right, so there's poetry. The Psalms are, are poetry. There's short stories, right? So Tobit is basically a short story. The book of Ruth, the book of Esther, just kind of like short stories. There is wise sayings. So the book of Proverbs is basically that quote book. Right, of all these wise things, wisdom would be similar. There's apocalyptic literature. So Daniel, Revelation, like, Revelation, so hard to understand because it's actually a certain genre of text. Right, they're writing in a certain way to communicate something. So we kinda have to know something as like, how do you look at apocalyptic literature in the ancient world, and that's gonna help us read the book of, the book of Revelation. Uh, biography. So the Gospels are actually written as other biographies were in the ancient world, right? You're gonna write a biography of, of Alexander the Great. It would be similar to how you would write how these biographies of Jesus were written. And then letters. I think letters we're all kind of still familiar with, so that's pretty cool. So they're pretty easy. Any questions up to here? Okay, so basically from here, Let's break down the Old Testament. Cuz I think the Old Testament we all have, we you know, go into mass, we know the stories, right? We know these stories of David of Goliath, we know the stories of of Moses leading the people out or the Passover or the flood. And we know all these stories. But I think sometimes we don't have the filing cabinet to say, how are all of these organized together, right? How do, these, how does it f- how do they fit in together, and what's the, what's the big narrative, what's the big story, and how do all these different ones fit together? Because the Bible doesn't really do that for us. It kind of is organized that way, but it's not like one continuous story start to finish. So there's a great, a great Catholic guy, Jeff Cavins, who, who did this great adventure Bible study um, that kind of organize things to help it to kind of put those filing cabinets together for us. And you can break down the Old Testament into to 10 chronological sections. So you just want to run through this. He has 12 uh, sections, but the last two of those are the New Testament. So we'll get to that uh, in a minute. So breaking down the Old Testament so we can understand it. Um, and as, as you're looking at this, so I, as I kind of put this together, um, there's like a main narrative book, right? So where's the story? And where's the narrative of what's happening in the book? And then, and then the bottom one you see, like what's the supplemental books? So that would be, let's say, let's say um, you're reading a history of, uh, of the Civil War, right? And so that's like telling the whole story of the Civil War from, you know, you probably have to have at least a chapter about how slavery came to be and all that sort of stuff, but you got a history of the Civil War, but then like a supplemental book would be a, uh, a short story about the death of Abraham Lincoln, right, so you, so that's, that's not the whole story. It's an important aspect of it, um, but it, it's not the whole narrative. So that's maybe the difference between these, like the whole narrative books versus a supplemental one that just Maybe it's even like, it could be like, you know, what's going on in the kingdom, and then the prophet Obadiah shows up, right? So he's not telling the whole story, he's just got his little, his little lane. All right, so the early world. The first, I think these first few we're all super familiar with, right? The main narrative books uh, is just the book of Genesis, and just the first 11 chapters. So Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel. So you get, basically you get creation, the fall you get some census well, you get Cain killing his brother Abel um, and then you get uh, you get the flood the call of Noah and then the Tower of Babel and so those are those are separated off because they're written very differently and we'll get to that next time uh, the next uh, presentation here so those are the main events that happen in the early world they're probably stories that all of us know know rather rather well and then after that, so Genesis 12 picks up with the call of Abraham. So that, this, is, this is what we call the patriarchs. The patriarchs being Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Genesis 12 through 50 tells all the stories of the patriarch and their, and their families. So and there, there's a whole bunch of ones that are very familiar, right? The call of Abraham to go out and leave his homeland, all the different covenants he makes with him, Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. Uh, Joseph getting sold into slavery by his brothers and going down to Egypt. Um, yeah, Esau selling his birthright for some red stuff. That's a fun one. Um, so, so basically, just so everybody knows the family tree, right? We got Abraham and his wife, Sarah. They've got, then they've got Isaac, who marries Rebecca. And then they've got Jacob in there. And Jacob, Jacob's family here. Jacob's going to be the father of many nations. His name gets translated to Israel, or his name gets changed to Israel. And his 12 sons become the, the leaders of the 12 tribes, right? So the 12 tribes, if you ever hear the 12 tribes, right? Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, well, that's just everybody who flows from the family tree of Benjamin. The tribe of Asher, everybody who flows from the tribe of Asher. So that's all these, these names, right? there's Reuben, who they make great sandwiches in that tribe. (laughs) Joseph's rocking his technicolor dream coat there. And the book of Job is from this time period, right? The the story of Job is at the time of the the patriarch, so he kind of gets included in there. (coughs) So the story, um, you know, goes through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph gets sold into slavery and goes down to Egypt, Right? He's there in Egypt, the rest of Jacob's sons, they got a famine in the Holy Land, right? They got an issue, and so they're supposed to go down to Egypt to beg for food, and who do they run into? Their brother, right? And then the brother convinces them, hey, just bring the whole crew down here. We'll stay in Egypt for a while. They got food, I got a good job. And uh, so that's how the people get to Egypt, of course. Maybe you know that, maybe, maybe it's in there somewhere. So the people end up in Egypt, and then Joseph dies, and a new pharaoh shows up, and things aren't as good, so it's time to bust them out of Egypt, and that's where Moses shows up, right? So years later, God hears the cry of his people, and so this third section is Egypt and the Exodus, God leading the people out uh, out of Egypt. And so all these different ones, the call of Moses with the burning bush, right? The plagues in Egypt, uh, the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea, the giving of the Ten Commandments, feeding the people with manna. In this, with the giving of the Ten Commandments, is the giving of all the law. So that's why Leviticus fits right in here. Um, yeah, it's all pretty familiar stuff. I imagine people know, know those stories. We just get the, uh, love the story of the crossing of the Red Sea that happens at the Easter Vigil. Hearing that story is just beautiful. Okay. Questions about that? Moses, Aaron, Miriam in there. All right, so they make it out of Egypt. They go to Mount Sinai. Uh, then they, they make their way onto the Holy Land. They're about ready to enter the Holy, Holy Land and they reconnoiter the Holy Land. I love the word reconnoiter. Uh, Basically, reconnaissance, right? They do reconnaissance in the Holy Land. They send out, send out this advance party to go and say, all right, what's it like? And they, uh, they come back, and they're like, uh, they're really fierce warriors over there. Uh, and they have this great line. They were, they were giants. We felt like mere grasshoppers. You know, I don't know why grasshoppers, but it's a great line. Um, so the people are like, oh, I don't know if we can do this. These people look really strong. Like, I don't think we can do this. And then you got people like Joshua. Like, no, we can take them. We can do this. The Lord is going to fight with us. But the people are like, ah, oh, no, we're not going to listen to that. So they're unfaithful, right? They don't trust that the Lord who took them out of Egypt, fed them the whole time, is going to get them there. So the Lord's like, all right, to the desert. We're going to wait 40 years. All y'all are going to die. and We're going to take the next generation in there. Right, like the Lord's not gonna force them into something they don't wanna do, but he's, not, but he's, he's just gonna wait until the, there's people ready to go. So uh, as they're wandering in the desert, that's the story of you know, people crying out for water, and Moses strikes the rock, and the Lord's like, I didn't tell you to strike the rock, uh, what are you doing? And uh, that's kinda like Moses' sin. The story of the bronze serpent happens here. So that's all the book of Numbers. It's called Numbers because uh, there's a census it, there might be multiple census, sensei? Yeah, uh, in the book of Numbers. So those are, there's the census so That's you get the book of Numbers. So it's their desert wanderings. Um, supplemental books, the book of Deuteronomy is also, also at this time. All right, so 40 years, people die off, new generation rises up, some are still there, mainly Joshua, and Joshua, is gonna lead the people into the Holy Land, right? Moses dies on the outside of the, on the other side of the, oh, let's just go back. The, uh, this here would be the Holy Land, right? This is the Mediterranean Sea. Egypt, you got down here. You got Turkey like way up there. So that's kind of like, and so they're coming, they're crossing the Jordan River, which runs from the Dead Sea to the Sea of Galilee, right? So they're they're crossing right around here. Mount Nabo, the one that's circled, that's where Moses dies, um, looking over. Although nobody knows where his tomb is. All right, Joshua leads the people across the, uh, the, um, the Jordan River. If anybody's ever watched The Passion of the Christ, um, you notice like as they're talking in Aramaic, every time they talk about Jesus' name, they call him Yeshua. And um, Joshua might be the most faithful person in the Old Testament, like more than Abraham, more than Moses. Like he is just faithful all the time. So it's probably no surprise why Jesus has the same name as Joshua, right, Yeshua. I also have a brother named Josh. We watch The Passions of the Christ, and he walks out of the theater, and his big takeaway is he says, guys, you can just call me Jesus. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, so basically they get into the Holy Land, right? They just kinda, they kick out everybody else. I mean, it's, it, they're doing a lot of fight in the book of Joshua. Um, and then the judges rise, so they gotta have somebody to rule. And there's this cycle that happens in the book of Judges, and the judges, there's seven judges. So basically what happens is uh, the people begin serving a different god, right? So it's like, well, you know, things are not going so great, so let's serve the, whatever this fertility goddess or this harvest god. And, uh, and then they, be, they realize like, oh gosh, there's servitude to another nation. And then they supplicate, right? They, they beg God to forgive them. or They beg God to save them. And then a, uh, a judge raises up. This would be like Samson's one of the judges. Everybody knows the story of Samson. Uh, Deborah, another one of the great judges. The story of Deborah is great. Um, so God raises up these judges. The judge saves the people, right? Kicks out all the rulers. Samson brings down all of the enemies. Uh, and then there's silence, right? Okay, there's some peace. Everything's going well. And then they go back to sinning with another, you know, another foreign god. So it's basically just like, it happens seven times. They just go through this cycle. Um, and the whole while, there's like this sense of like, we want a king. Right? Give us a king. We want a king. All of these other nations have kings. You're just giving up these lousy judges. Give us a king to rule forever and a kingdom. All these other places have a king. The problem being, God's supposed to be their king. Right? The answer: You have a king, people. Why are you asking for a one? Um, so they didn't realize that. But the Lord's patient; He's merciful, so He raises up a king, named Saul. Saul. Saul shows up, right? And uh, you know, Saul doesn't really do his best job as king. So eventually, God's like, "All right." Time for a new one. Samuel. So Samuel's kind of like uh, the prophet. He's going around doing a lot, of, a lot of the Lord's work, anointing kings. So Saul's not doing a great job, so Samuel uh, gets raised up. Our Samuel goes and anoints David as the king. Um, and so there's all these stories that go in with this, with this kingdom here. Um, you know, Saul's rejected, David's anointed, slaying Goliath, David's sin with Bathsheba. And then it, it uh, ends with Solomon, David's son, building the first temple. So these, these kind of show up in 1st and 2nd Samuel. And then 1st Kings, Kings 11 is where Solomon dies. And so supplemental books, chronicles, a lot of the wisdom literature. So like the Psalms are written by David at this time. <sighs> All right. Things, you know, um, we're on a downward slope. Just so you know, like things aren't going so hot, right? Solomon dies. Solomon has it starts out really promising, and then Solomon just kind of the wheels fall off. Uh, I don't know what happens. Um, yeah, I mean, he had three hundred wives and five hundred concubines. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> So the kingdom's divided. So the 10 northern tribes split off from the two southern tribes. So Judah Judah and Benjamin are down in the south. They split off from, the the 10 northern tribes split off. So you've got the the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Not really how God planned it, right? To have his kingdom divided. Just like God didn't plan for his church to be divided, but that's a different story for a different topic. Um, So one king's and then one, our second kings. So the second half of first kings and all of second kings gives this. And this, there's a whole bunch of like random people that just show up for a couple chapters. They're not terribly faithful. You get some good kings. Hezekiah is one of the really good kings. This is also where Elijah and Elisha, the prophets, are doing their ministry. Um, I really wanted to put a picture of Elijah slaying all the prophets of Baal. Because I just, that story, hilarious. Um, I love uh, uh, I can't go into story, so he mocks them, that's my favorite part, is where they said, maybe your gods are asleep, yell louder, they could, you gotta wake them up, and they do, <laughs> hilarious, so the kingdom's divided, Jezebel, Antio- Jezebel shows up all the time in the northern kingdom, that's never a good, a good deal, and a lot of the prophets are active at this time, right, the, the, as the kingdom's going down, Right, then the losing the fidelity, people are doing things they shouldn't, God's raising up prophets to try to call them back. Right, That's always the work of the prophets, to call God's people back. So that's, that's, that's their role in all this, and God keeps calling up these prophets at this time. So Isaiah's at this time, Jonah, uh, Hosea, Micah, all, a lot of the, the prophets are happening at this time. Kingdom's divided, but it gets worse. They go into exile. Foreign invaders come and just blow the place up. So this is uh, the end of the book of Second Kings. So you get a lot of, a lot of the prophets are the main characters at this time. Um, so first, the Northern Kingdom, the Assyrians come in from Syria, Assyria. They come in and they overrun the Northern Kingdom in the year 722. The Southern Kingdom sticks around for almost 150 years but then the Babylonians come in and overrun the second kingdom, or the southern kingdom. And uh, the picture there is the destruction of this temple, the destruction of the temple. I think it's hard for us to grasp how um, disheartening is not a strong enough word it would be for the temple to be destroyed. So the temple was the center of their religion, but it was also the center of their economics. It was the center of politics and it's the, it was the center of like social life. So it would be as if St. Peter's Basilica in, in the Vatican, the US Capitol, and uh, Wall Street, and your favorite place to meet with your friends, where all your family reunions happened, were all destroyed, right? That's, that place was, everything was there or you'd meet with your family at Passover there every time. Everybody's coming together and meeting. You would, you know, that's where the center of the economy, the center of politics, it was all there, destroyed. You could imagine just how disheartening it is. That's why the book of Lamentations, right? What are they lamenting? Well, their sinfulness, basically, and how bad things have gotten, and how far they've fallen from, from the Lord so things get pretty bad um, in, when the exile happens. And of course, not everybody is taken into exile. So a lot of like, the, the, the priests, the religious leaders, and the political leaders are taken in exile to, to Babylon, especially in the southern kingdom. But a lot of the common people, like they stick around. right? They're still there. They just have to like, all right, how do I tell my grandchildren what used to happen here? Right? The temple's gone, and what are we, what are we living for now? and it seems as though God's abandoned us. So they're trying to make sense of this, and the prophets are trying to help people make sense of what the Lord's doing in all of this. So it's a sad time, but it's not the end. They actually, they come back. So the main two books here are Ezra and Nehemiah. So Nehemiah is the governor, he's like the political leader that's like driving this train of getting people back. Ezra is the scribe. So Ever, Ever's, Ezra's like taking notes. Uh, Zechariah the prophet's happening. So there's like three waves, you'd almost say three waves of immigration, of people, people coming back and they actually, they rededicate the temple. So there's a second temple that's built. And say it's nothing near to the first, but there is a second, second temple. Which is being depicted in this picture here is the dedication of the temple. Anybody see anything that looks a little familiar in there? A menorah. So our Jewish brothers and sisters, the feast of Hanukkah is the feast that they celebrate the rededication of the temple. So that's what Hanukkah, what they celebrate Hanukkah every year is the fact that the temple was rededicated, right? So that they they got to come back. So it's It's not as big of a feast day as the Passover, but Hanukkah, that's that's a pretty important day. So you get some other books happening now. Esther, um, Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi some other prophets. So they had to come back, which is great. But the woes aren't over. We get the Maccabees gotta, gotta show up. So this is the end. So the, the, um, so the people are there, right? They're there in the Holy Land. They're using the temple. And then, you know, the Babylonians have come in. The Assyrians have come in. They've escaped from Egypt. Now it's the Greeks' turn, right? The Greeks come in and they overrun the Holy Land. And Judas Maccabeus and his sons, his... Uh, his uh, brothers are the ones that are gonna drive out the Greeks out of the Holy Land. And this is around the year like 150 B.C. So this is not terribly far from the birth of Christ. right? This is relatively recent compared to you know, David happening right, around 1,000, I think. Um, so basically this whole first and second Maccabees, they're not like one Maccabees happens, then two Maccabees happens. They seem to be written from a bit of different perspective. But you think about maybe a couple, couple stories that you, you might know from the, um, the, the books of Maccabees. Um, the one is the mother who has her seven sons before her, and they want, they want the sons to eat the, uh, the food that's been sacrificed, and they're like, "I'm not eating that." And they bring in mom to like kind of like, "See, Mom's going to say it's OK. Right? Tell your kids to obey us, or else we'll kill them." And the mom's like, "No, they're not eating that. My boys are going to be faithful. And mom watches her seven boys be killed. Um, but they're faithful. So um, it's a powerful story. Another one is after a battle uh, Judas Maccabeus, they're, they're victorious, uh, but, and they're going to kind of bury the dead. And they realize all of these, these dead guys, the Jewish guys, have pagan amulets on. So they've got little jewelry to foreign gods. He's like, oh, this isn't good. Let's. Pray for them and let's offer sacrifice for these dead people, which we take as like, oh, you can pray for the dead, right? You can actually help people who are already dead. And the church takes that very seriously to say, well, this is why we pray for the dead. This is why we offer the sacrifice of the mass for those who have died, because the the Jewish people did that also, right? Judas Maccabeus did this. So the books of wisdom and Sirach are also written about this time. Just a few hundred years before, before Jesus. All right, like that's a that's a quick run through the Old Testament. Any any questions? Are you advertising the great Bible timeline chart? I, I, no. I was just saying. You it's great. You know, yeah, I keep this in my Bible, I so I I can figure out what's what's going on. It's got the whole timeline, and whoosh. I love charts and maps and all that sort of stuff. Um, so gets me all giddy all right so the Old Testament comes to a comes to a actually you know what I, I looked on their website to get like the the little the little graphic of the, the great adventure there and I found they have like like a they have like a six foot timeline that you could get to like put in a, like in the room where you do like catechesis and stuff I was like I want that for my bedroom uh, <laughs> You think I'm kidding, but I'm not. Um, during my, co- my coronation, I, uh, I, I completed my movement of bedrooms. We're doing a little reshuffling in the rectory with new priests coming. And the last thing I had to do was I had to move my maps to my new bedroom. So I have a USA wall map about yay big, and a world wall map that I got from my grandparents who passed away that's a Cold War era wall map. So you can still go, oh, the Yugoslavia, all that sort of stuff. So kind of fun it's like oh no here we are again (laughs) all right so eventually Jesus shows up and the Gospels the Gospels you may or may not know this but the Gospels get a lot of criticism these days and it's from scholars who are um, you know trying to disprove Christianity and they're also often criticized and so you could get this by going to like an introductory college course on the New Testament doesn't matter if you go to a like a secular school, like you go to Bowling Green to take a course like this, or you go to a Catholic school, like the University of Dayton, and take a course like this. Oftentimes, kids will get this. This is what they're getting: is that these gospels were anonymously written and then later given names. Like this whole kind of like conspiracy business kind of is really popular. And, um, and I don't know if just historians are really into conspiracies now. Um, And there's a great book laying all this out. So uh, Brant Petrie's got a book called The Case for Jesus that basically he had this crisis of faith, right? He went to school, took New Testament classes, and basically realized like the Gospels are all fakes. Turns out they're not though. Because they have this anonymous, these books are anonymous, but there are no anonymous copies ever. I showed you we have like 5,300 manuscripts of the New Testament, none of them are anonymous. And uh, all the first Christians, especially the Gospels, attribute the, have always, every copy that we have of the text of the Gospel of Matthew is always titled the Gospel According to Matthew. Same thing with Mark, with Luke, with John. There's no like, oh, this is the anonymous one, right? We found the anonymous one. We actually do have an anonymous book in the New Testament that the church is even like, ah, eh, we're not exactly sure who wrote this. Do I know which one that is? The Letter to the Hebrews. That's so why you just hear it, a reading from the letter to the Hebrews. Wait a minute, you did say a leading, reading from the letter of Paul, or, yeah, letter to the Hebrews. Now, a lot of people think Paul wrote it. A lot of people don't think Paul wrote it. Um, so the New Testament are these Gospels, like I said, they have an uh, ancient bio- biography. And then, for those that don't know, uh, the Acts of the Apostles is just part two of the Gospel according to St. Luke. So the same writer, and it's even like in the Acts of the Apostles, that's just not like some scholarly thing, it's, it's pretty kinda. So here's the start of the Acts of the Apostles. In the first book, I dealt with all that Jesus did and taught until the day he was taken up after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the Apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them by many proofs, yada yada yada, he's just recapping everything that he said in the first, in part one. So the Acts is part two. All right, and there's a whole lot like uh, with the Gospels that um, it's kind of fun to talk about. And even like the differences between the Gospels. So I guess this image is one of the Gospels because these four um, creatures are always attributed to the four Gospel writers. So Matthew is always the, the man, Mark is the lion, Luke is the bull, and John is the eagle. Those four creatures show up in the book of Revelation together. So maybe one, one quick like thing about the, the f- Gospels is you can look at the very first public act of Jesus in each of the Gospels, and it sets the tone for the Gospel and how Jesus is viewed. And it's different in all four Gospels, the first public act after the baptism, right? So the baptism happens, and then what's the first thing Jesus does? This is where a quiz show comes on, all right? The first public act of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, I know. Mm, that's going to be John. Yeah, that's in John, only in John. The the Sermon on the Mount. So the first thing Jesus says in the does in the Gospel of Matthew he gets in his gets in his pulpit and starts teaching, and that's who Jesus Matthew is primarily portraying. Jesus not primarily, but it's his great emphasis is that Jesus is teaching. So he so there's five um, in the Gospel according to Matthew. It's organized really well. There's five long discourses of Jesus. So there's discourse, Jesus does stuff. Discourse, Jesus does stuff. Discourse, Jesus does stuff. Discourse, and it goes, goes on and on. Um, like the five books of, the, of Moses, right? Um, so yeah, so Jesus is the teacher in Matthew's Gospel. Mark, anybody know the first thing Jesus does in Mark's Gospel? An exorcism. He shows up, there's a possessed person, and he fights the devil right from the start. And Jesus is just straight up fighting and moving in Mark's gospel. So Mark's gospel is the shortest. There's no infancy narrative, basically Jesus shows up and says, repent and believe in the gospel, and he hits the ground running. Um, There's like, if in the the Greek of the New Testament, in in Mark, Mark uses the same word over and over, and it's this word that's like translated then, and in 16 chapters, he uses it, I think, something like 80 times. So it, it feels like Jesus did this, did this, and then he 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 did this. So it's like he just comes out. He's fighting the devil in, uh, in Mark's gospel. Luke, I know the first thing in Luke's gospel. Jesus goes into the synagogue, takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, says, The year of, of plenty is upon us. I come to proclaim liberty to captive, recovery of sight to the blind, mercy to sinners. Jesus is the man of mercy in Luke's gospel. So in Luke's gospel, the only, that's the only gospel that we have the story of the prodigal son. It's the only gospel that we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. So there's all these different acts of mercy that Jesus does that are only in Luke's gospel. It kicks off with the, um, the proclaiming of the, the year of Jubilee. Lastly, John's Gospel starts with the wedding feast at Cana. So Jesus has a transformation. Transforms water into wine. And you see that throughout John's Gospel. There's transformations. Maybe the, one of the most poignant that's only in John's Gospel, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Right? Lazarus literally transforms from death to life. Jesus is going to do that too. All right. So we got the, the, those are the Gospels, A little, little bit about each Gospel. Then there's the letters. So there are 21 letters in the uh, New Testament. Most of them are written by Paul, we've got three by John, two by Peter, one by Jude, and then our anonymous letter to the Hebrews. Some are written to particular people. right? so some, uh, you get a letter from Saint Paul to Timothy, right? Paul's correspondence with Timothy. Or um, and you can kind of, or they're written to particular groups of people, right? The Corinthians, written to the whole church in Corinth, the Thessalonians, everybody in Thessalonica, Ephesians, everybody in Ephesus, right? And you can kind of, as you read the letter, you can discern some of the issues by what uh, what's happened, what he says in the uh, what he says in the letter. Most of them start like, I Paul write to blah 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 blah. And then he gives thanks. And I give thanks to all that God's doing in your midst. And he's doing such great things. Except the letter to the Galatians. He, in the letter to the Galatians, he starts off and he says, Oh, I, Paul, write to you, Galatians, the Church of Galatia, blah, blah, blah. Oh, how stupid and foolish you are, stupid Galatians. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and others are... Others are called, we call them the Catholic letters, so they're universal, they're meant for the whole church. So the first letter of Peter, it's not a letter of Peter to somebody, it's just written to everybody. So that would be like Peter, first, second, third John, um, and Jude, and the letter to the Hebrews. Wait, no, the letter to the Hebrews is to the Hebrews, my bad. All right, so that's the letters. Um, the book of Revelation of course wraps this whole thing up, but uh, I mentioned that a little bit already. All right, some, some helpful hints for reading sacred scripture, and we'll, we'll wrap up with this slide. The first is just to know what era from the history of salvation you're talking, right? If we're reading this book of the Bible, this passage, all right, how does this fit into the whole thing, right? Those 10 eras or the New Testament, like where does this fit in God's plan? Like what, is God, what has he done, what is he doing, where does this fit in the grand scheme of things? Then what literary genre is it? Alright, am I reading poetry or am I reading a legal text? Am I reading a narrative or am I reading a biography? What, what in the world am I, am I reading, reading here? So how does the church view the text? So if you have a catechism, you can go to the index and it's basically like it's there's a biblical index, I think in every catechism, that you can say, okay, you got Romans 6, chapter 5, or verse 5. Is that anywhere in the catechism? And then you can like, look through the catechism and say, oh, it uses that for, for baptism, right? And so you can kind of see, all right, that's how the churches use this, this particular text. Then a, a hint, maybe this is obvious, but read the Bible like it has something to teach you. I know I have this, like, this is, my, this is my 5.30 a.m. daily mass conundrum. Is where I read the I read the daily mass readings like, okay, I know that one. What? <laughs> you know, like we get so familiar with these that either we can we think like, okay, I know that one, I've heard it already, but um, but it's always got something to teach us, right? And I think probably all of us have that experience that you can plumb the depths and you'll never you'll never find bottom. Um, so it has something to teach you. Um, That also has a bit of humility to it, to say, okay, I can learn from this. And then also to keep on going. So sometimes we get stuck, and we're like, what in the world does this mean? I can't, and we can get stuck on it, probably just keep moving. Sometime in our life, we might come back to it, right? Like sometimes we might hear it again in five years or in five days, and uh, it'll actually make, oh, okay, I get it now. But just keep on going, there's plenty in there. Uh, And then to read it prayerfully, Um, It is God, the Lord of the universe, speaking to us. So we should read it prayerfully. And to do that, um, there's kind of a a popular process called Lexio Divina. It's just divine reading. That's all it is for Latin. Um, But it's basically this process of letting the word of God speak to us. So there's these five steps. So the first one's just reading, right? Let's just read this text kind of knowing a bit what's going on, right? And then... um, and then meditation. So meditation's like digging around, right? Okay, he's saying this to that guy, and this guy's reacting in that way. And then Jesus tells him to do this, like okay, right? It's just like digging around for for the uh, for what's happening and what's what's the meaning maybe that the author's trying to communicate. And then the next one, oratio, is prayer. Okay, because of this, we start talking to God. All right, Lord, because He's treating this guy in this way, this person was blind and. Gosh, today I feel like I'm blind, I can't see what's going on in my life, and I'm asking you, just like he did, that master, I wanna see. Right? is to begin to talk to God with the, with the Bible, right? to begin to, to allow this, to, to direct us to him. So meditation, just thinking about this, oratio, prayer, taking it to the Lord, and then the contemplation part, contemplatio, is after you've talked, it's time to listen, to ta- say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Right, Kind of mute ourselves, open up our ears and say, okay, Lord, what do, you, what do you want to say to me? And then the last thing the resolution. Okay, because, I, because this happened in prayer, what am I going to do about it? Right? That connects our prayer life to our, our day-to-day life. To say, okay, because God has, you know, whatever, um, shown me, uh, has helped lift my blindness, I'm actually going to try to see other people's Pain, right? And see what other people is going through. Try to lift my head out for that for the rest of the day. Right? You don't make resolutions that are going to go on for the rest of your life every single day. But you just make a resolution for the rest of the day. Today, um, I realized the Lord came and spoke to me and listened to my belly achings. I should probably call somebody that needs, uh, needs some, some uh, help today or whatever it may be. So to make some sort of resolution from our prayer. All right. That's sacred scripture. Well, I mean, like, you got the rest of your life, too. <laughs> Think about the Bible. Questions? Concerns? Uh, all right. Well, next week is uh, the story of salvation, so it's kinda gonna be a bit of similar things, but, um, but not purely scripture. It'll be, I'm, I'm excited for what it's worth. <laughs> In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Everybody have a great day.